everyone, Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd, and you are listening to the latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. And this one is a special one, because in this episode, we are going to be going over, basically, classics, classic records, a entire series of classic reviews, going from System of a Down's Toxicity to Burials Untrue, a Future Garage classic. Uh, we have Cannibal Ox's The Cold Vein, an underground New York hip-hop classic. Slater Kinney's The Woods, uh, a noise and indie rock classic off of Sub Pop Records. And The Postal Services Give Up, a synth pop and indie electronic classic right there. So we have five hot, fantastic classic reviews lined up for you in this episode. Let's go. go. Ba-bam. System of a Down. Toxicity. This is the sophomore full-length album from California alternative metal outfit System of a Down. The breakthrough record that would solidify the band as an essential figure in modern metal. With singles like Aerials and Toxicity and Chop Suey. Toxicity was also the band's first platinum album and they would go on to sell 40 million copies worldwide of albums throughout their discography. And as much as it was a part of my musical diet when I was a teenager, uh, metal music in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was kind of a shit show. Of course, anyone can retrospectively go back and cherry-pick any number of great underground releases from that time period that have withstood the test of time, from Opeth or Boris or Mastodon or Sleep, but it wouldn't really give you an accurate portrait of the metal landscape at the time. Because all that thrash metal and groove metal, it would eventually give way to some really tacky hybrids of rap and rock, as well as new metal. Now, of course, there were some great groups that crafted their own sound and image during this time period. Your Marilyn Mansons and your Rage Against the Machines, Corn and Deftones and Tool and Slipknot, but there was still so much crap to cut through, especially with each new group sounding more cookie cutter than the next, putting more and more of an emphasis on either a larger visual gimmick or just trying to sell this mall goth image. But System of a Down was a much needed breath of fresh air in an ocean of cringy rap verses and down-tuned two-note riffs. And even though the band did take a lot from the prevailing grooves and guitar tones that were popular in metal at the time, time, they built their own little unique sound into it over the course of several great records. And what made these albums stand out was their bold personality, pure absurdity, potent rage, and infectious hooks. Also, the band's sense of melody was much greater than a lot of their other metal contemporaries. They were also not shy about working their Armenian roots into their music as well, through the percussion, the melodies, through the harmonies, or even the instrumentation on a given track. And I would argue that influence only got stronger as the band progressed. Their lyrics were boldly political for a metal band at the time too, and this dates back to their early demos and debut album. While the ridiculous sugar and uncompromisingly dark spiders served as functional singles for their first record that kind of drew listeners into the cult of System of a Down, deeper cuts like Sweet Pea and War weren't hesitant to dive into topics like American imperialism and religious fanaticism. And the band wasn't just writing music that was socially aware, but socially ahead of the curve. Toxicity's official release date was just seven days before the September 11th attacks in 2001, but the lyrics on this album were written as if they had the hindsight of the next seven years of authoritarian garbage that the Bush administration would serve up. And it's kind of depressing to admit that this album's themes of pollution and addiction and private prisons and endless war, they're only more relevant now. 
It would be an oversight on my part if I also didn't mention that frontman Serge Tankian is one of the most enigmatic and expressive frontmen in metal ever. He's really the kind of singer that you only get one time in a genre and one time only, as his sung vocals on Systems Records were not only incredibly compelling but showed a ton of volume and range. I really love his very nasally timbre, sits up very high in the throat but has such a strong sense of pitch. Meanwhile, his dynamic and cartoony shrieks and growls and screams remain unmatched in metal in their energy and character. Meanwhile, guitarist and songwriter Darren Malakian wasn't shy about bringing his own vocals into the fold more and more as the band grew in popularity, and this brought another interesting dynamic to their sound, especially on Toxicity. And on Toxicity, you have all these elements coming together and totaling into this incredibly raw and heavy and varied sound. All of it's being filtered through the production lens of the legendary Rick Rubin, who had also helped develop the sound of bands that inspired System of a Down, like Slayer. Now, Toxicity is a pretty tight listen, even for its 15 tracks, because the band had the talent to allow themselves to write these fantastic anthems and mystical ballads, but also these blistering two-minute onslaughts like the Bizarre Jet Pilot, a track that even the band has admitted doesn't really mean all that much. <laughs> and then there's the very hilarious tribute to group sex on the song Bounce. But between the lines of eccentricity and weirdness that are placed throughout this record, Toxicity does deliver some very significant songs and statements. Like on the opening track Prison Song, which is most likely the most effective example of straight sloganeering in a rock song but actually managing to keep it entertaining. Even in the midst of Surge shouting crime statistics and corruption headlines in the middle of verses and choruses, oddly it adds to the song's incredible sense of fear and tension. Meanwhile, the riffs on this track are hard as friggin' cement. Then there's the harrowing deer dance, which is all about police brutality, especially toward peaceful protesters. This track eventually progresses into imagery of kids getting pushed around with automatic rifles. And even though the message and the aggression of this track are pretty bold, the most breathtaking part of it is actually the super mellow bridge where you get these beautiful rustic guitar melodies. Toxicity also features a greater sense of spirituality, especially on tracks Forest and Science, which directly reference the environment being destroyed at the hands of human progress and technological advancement. Themes that are also expressed on the song ATWA, which stands for Air, Trees, Water, and Animals. The track is like a forlorn send-off to all of the great things that the planet has given us that we're slowly killing off. However, the song's message and title takes from the ecological credo of Charles Manson, and uh, I mean, I could, I could think of better figures uh, who have an environmental message that you might want to reference, but as far as I can tell, Darren does sort of separate Charles Manson's heinous actions from what he thinks about the uh, the livelihood of our planet, I guess. There are quite a few cuts on this record that dive into themes of control as well, whether it be more widespread and nefarious strains of it on the song Shimmy, which features some very odd and repetitive and simplistic lyrics, but it can be gleaned pretty easily that the track is about conforming as a result of indoctrination via a fake education, or even control as the result of an addiction or dependency on a substance. Like on the song Needles, where the band likens being addicted to having a mind-controlling tapeworm stuck in you that you need to pull out of your ass. Pull the tapeworm out of your ass! Hey! 
Okay. Addiction is also in the spotlight on the most popular song on this record, Chop Suey, which is kind of lost in translation in the song's fragmented narrative, as well as the band not being able to name the song after the self-righteous suicide reference in the hook and instead having to call it Chop Suey. If you listen very closely at the start of the song, you can hear where Rolling Suicide, making reference to the original title of the track. But this song essentially boils down to a conflict between two people, one person who obviously has a problem and they're doing everything that they can to hide it and just keep it under wraps, either that or just not deal with it. And meanwhile, we have an antagonist who's trying to expose this problem, take this person to task over this problem. This judgment and this pressure eventually drives this person to suicide that almost kind of turns into like a religious experience over the bridge where they're basically crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? It's pretty heavy stuff and much heavier than I think a lot of the young listeners this song appealed to appreciated at the time, especially since the track has been kind of covered and replayed so much that it's lost all meaning. Then there's the gorgeous and haunting title track, which culminates a lot of the album's ideas on losing touch with nature and spirituality and humanity essentially getting sucked into this modern, over-prescribed society. There's also a mental health angle to it as well. Meanwhile, the closing track, Aerials, reaches an even larger emotional and instrumental climax with tons of soaring vocal harmonies and strings and grand guitar chords. The lyrics on this track exploring themes of oneness, as well as isolation and putting up walls, basically needing to throw out small-mindedness and egoism to attain real freedom. Eerily odd how much <laughs> this record kind of goes against the grain of a lot of the prevailing politics of the past few years. Though I guess back then things weren't really all that different. The only thing that's changed now is the factor has been multiplied pretty greatly. Overall, Toxicity is an amazing album, a metal record that I don't not love a single song on. It is a beautiful and also a brutal record, too. It's ridiculous, yet also deadly serious. It's nuanced and complex, and then also in another breath, it's just grossly aggressive and primal. And that's because this record, like many great ones that came before it, has a fantastic duality to it. Arguably one of the best metal records of the past 20 years, one of the best metal albums alternative metal has ever brought to the table, and certainly a masterpiece from a band whose prime music-making years were cut kind of short. Transition into the next review. Classic review, burial, untrue, let's go! This is the second full-length album from William Emmanuel Bevan, AKA Burial, an electronic music producer based in the UK who dropped this album back in 2007 through Hyperdub Records, helping ignite a quiet revolution in the dance scene there that would become an international sensation. The influential lineage of Burial's music goes back to the days of Garage House in New York City decades and decades ago, where a smoother strain of the house music coming from Chicago at the time began to take hold. This somewhat different blend of house music coming from NYC at the time was marked by more disco rhythms, luxurious pianos and synthesizers, as well as lead vocals that were more inspired by soul music and even gospel. Notable singles include early 80s pioneers like The Peach Boys with the song Don't Make Me Wait, a track that had a bit more of an electro influence too, as well as more experimental cuts like Arthur Russell's Let's Go Swimming. Then we have some of the prime hit makers of the late 80s and early 90s, tracks that charted both in the UK and the US at the time, like a diva's house flip of the soul smash, 
or Chicago Outfit 10 Cities, That's the Way Love Is. Also, the uh, Crystal Waters song, Gypsy Woman. La-da-dee, la-da-da, la-da-dee, la-da-da. Over in the UK, they started to develop their own strains of the stuff in the 90s and 2000s, resulting in some really weird and wild variations fused with elements of other electronic genres, R&B, even hip-hop, artists like Roy Davis Jr. and The Streets and Zed Bias and MJ Cole. This new umbrella of UK Garage encompassed a lot of different sounds and styles. One of the most surprising of which is Two-Step, which featured these kind of shuffling, boxy rhythms that gave the sound a really interesting vibe. All of this artistic evolution then falls at the feet of Burial in the 2000s, but his ideas and intentions are far different than that of any UK garage producer up until that point. William came through with a pretty distinct sound right away, swapping out garages, typically jaunty and jumpy pianos for ambient oceans of synth, swapping out live singers and guest singers for vocal samples from other popular tracks like Usher's How Do I Say, or Ciara's Promise, or Beyonce's cover of Victoria Beckham's Resentment, just to name a few samples on this very large record. And the vocal snippets on this thing are usually pretty short, pretty tight, treated to a lot of pitch shifting and effects. The vocals on this thing are also laid out with tons of reverb and echoes, various manipulations to make them sound distant and ghostly and disembodied, but still really beautiful and haunting. How Burial treats voice on this album is easily the most stunning thing about it, and this formula for most of the tracks on this record pretty much leaves the groove on the shoulders of the beat and the beat alone. And those beats tend to run pretty busy on this record, and they're always subtly shifting too. They have a really strong sense of rhythm and direction to counteract the usually washed out layers of subterranean bass and vocals and synths that sit on top. Essentially what Burial is presenting on this album is like the most abstract take on a variety of different electronic and dance music styles that were prevalent at the time, whether it be some dubstep or two-step or R&B or UK house and garage. So not only are all of these ideas coming together, but they're also being filtered through this IDM and ambient techno lens. You could actually argue a lot of what Burial is doing on this LP does kind of mirror what Richard D. James was doing back in the 90s, grabbing a variety of formulas and ideas from typically aggressive and in-your-face forms of electronic dance music, and then softening them and stretching them out and giving them tons of space and mood and atmosphere so they're more fitting for like a headphone listen. The ideas that William presented on this record were so left field for the UK garage scene that they were worthy of their own genre title, Future Garage. And this combination of ideas and sounds is essentially what Burial would work to perfect over a few EPs, a debut album, really until he ended up releasing Untrue in 2007. Several more lengthy EPs where he would continue to experiment and evolve with this sound would drop after this record, but if you're interested in my thoughts on those, I, I have done reviews on them. But Untrue is the record this review is about, in my opinion, a defining moment for electronic music across the board, specifically in the UK, an artistic aha moment, a moment where a great fresh idea makes a huge splash among fans and critics and even a sea of labels and artists who would drop brigade after brigade of 
future Garage records for like the next five to six years. This record really was a phenomenon that wowed fans across the music spectrum, with its evocative atmospheres, with its hypnotic rhythms. The album generally sounds like blissfully raving into the night on an endless loop with tears in your eyes. The track listing features 13 songs and interludes, it is 50 minutes of material, and Burial essentially whips up a perfect mix of variations on the simple but effective themes that I was talking about him working with earlier. The flow of this record is parsed out really well with an intro, some more ambient interludes to kind of give you a, a very relaxing breather. But even though some great highlights could be separated out from this album, for the most part, a lot of the tracks just kind of seamlessly bleed into one another into this gorgeous, orgasmic experience that you just don't really want to end, and I suppose it doesn't have to as long as you keep repeating it. And even though Untrue does have some washy and blissful and ambient qualities to it, there are some bold and interesting sounds to be heard on this record that are worth paying attention to. This is far from a wallpaper record. If you wanted to, you could eat up every crackly and tingly and industrial sound haunting the mix on the song Ghost Hardware or even the title track. There's also the very quiet and subtly whooping bass notes on the song Etched Headplate, which match really well with the vaguely glitchy manipulations that Burial makes on some of the vocal samples on this cut. If you want to, you could get lost in the endless and infinite echoes laid onto the vocal samples on Near Dark, which also features some oddly appropriate <laughs> sounds of a uh, what sounds like bullet shell casings hitting the ground. I also love the thumping drums on Raver, which is probably the most danceable song on the entire record. Also features some kind of awkward and plucky thumb piano notes in the second half that are an odd addition, but still bring some flavor. And for as soft as it is, the slowly shifting droney synth notes, as well as the vocal samples that ring out like whale calls on the song Endorphin, are on the edge of your seat gorgeous. Meanwhile, some of the other interludes on this thing vibe kind of like a darkened version of New Age music or something, like if New Age music were goth. I could go over every single little sonic detail laid into this record, and believe me, there are a lot, but describing every single bit of that is not as important as the viscerally beautiful experience that all of these songs coming together creates. The mental weightlessness that this album can deliver to the listener when listening to it in kind of close quarters or in just like a very isolated setting. As the tracks on this album not only sound like clouds, pillowy clouds, but also concrete. It's like I'm experiencing the eternal bliss and numbness of an afterlife, but it's also kind of struck down by eternal gray skies. The key to this album's widespread popularity is the ideas and the beauty of this record are so great and universal. Really to the point where knowledge of the ideas and genres that Burial is working with on this record, it's not entirely necessary to just enjoy what's going on here. I may even argue that explaining what makes this record so great isn't entirely necessary either, as you should really just go listen to it. Tran? Zition? Into the next review. Cannibal Ox. The cold vein. Classic review. Cannibal Ox. Let's go. Cannibal, Cannibal Ox is a music duo consisting of Harlem rappers Vortal Mega and Vastaire. And for a while, this 2001 album, The Cold Vein, had been their only album. Until they followed it up in 2015 with a record whose reception was less than lukewarm. 
I'm not gonna dwell on that now. But the cold vein though, it was a watershed moment for hip hop on the East Coast in the 2000s. The next logical step for Big Apple rappers who sought to keep the genre lyrical and gritty, but also evolve past the basic boom bap sounds that defined the 90s. And even though up until this point, hip hop has always had an underground scene of some sort because the underground is where the genre started, the 2000s is really where you start to see this cellular division of what hit the mainstream in hip hop and what didn't. The sounds and lyrical styles that were more popular on both sides of the mainstream aisle were different. The artists that were popular on both sides of the mainstream aisle were different, though many tried to transition. Typically on the underground side of things, you found a lot of more obscure and conscious and abstract strains of hip-hop. And at the time, this more left-field scene was fostered across the country through a network of groups and labels. But in the case of New York, and specifically Cannibal Ox, it was Definitive Jux Records. The cold vein over here was the label's first full-length album release, which opened the floodgates for numerous artists whose own unique takes on this abstract style is still felt to this day. People like Aesop Rock and LP, RJD2, Cage, as well as Murder, Def Jux did end up closing shop in 2010, but not before going on to inspire great works from other artists who were connected to the scene, people like Uncommon NASA, as well as Billy Woods. And I definitely want to mention some of the newer names that have come along and progressed this New York sound in their own way that I don't think they would be here if not for the efforts of Def Jux, the now defunct Rat King, Elucid, who has also teamed up with Billy Woods in their own duo named Armand Hammer, guys like Ka as well. I see these guys as sort of kind of being a part of the same lineage, even though I think a lot of the experimentation and inspiration artists take from music these days is more internet-based than it is localized within whatever region they're living in. But at the time of the release of The Cold Vein, the sound that Vastar and Vortal Mega were creating on this record, it was localized and it was specific. As there aren't really any rappers I can think of who dropped significant records around this time who sounded anything like them. In its most comparable moments, the cold vein kind of sounds like a Wu-Tang cipher if the MC roster was limited to rappers who had philosophy, physics, double majors. On top of that, the production from LP on this record sounds unlike anything else that was released at the time. The closest thing I can think of are some of the beats he produced with Company Flow a few years earlier, but even some of those feel pretty distant from the glistening and grimy sounds El Producto formulates on the cold vein. Like the ghostly horn hits and space age synths on the song Iron Galaxy, kind of sounds like something out of a science lab. Or on the song Ox Out the Cage, which features these crashing chords ringing out into oblivion, these dramatic synth swells that are like something out of a sci-fi movie soundtrack. A B-Boy's Alpha's instrumental kind of resembles a RZA beat at some points with its chunky rhythms and its fractured pianos. But the vibe is kind of flipped with some other weird piano passages, effects, and delays. It's like Wu-Tang on a spirit journey. The instrumental on Painkiller is pulling from a very similar place of inspiration but with the eerie samples and theatrical organs, I feel like I'm trapped inside of an old-school horror movie or like a turn-of-the-century mental hospital where I'm being treated to electroshock therapy. The beat on Raspberry Fields is like 
classic LP production, the stuttering kick drums and croaking synth bass lines that sound like a frickin' mechatode, and not to mention all the heaping helpings of sound effects laced throughout the track, too. Even though this record came out in 2001, the beats still contain the lethal qualities of hardcore hip-hop's golden age. But it's just taken to another dimension, sometimes achieving like a beautiful, mystical quality like on the song Stress Rap. The instrumentals are honestly what has aged best about this album in the almost 20 years it's been since its release. This record also still stands as one of the best executions of a Jaco Pistorius sample I think I've ever heard on a hip-hop record, too. In my opinion, the lyrical performances from Vast Air and Vortal Mega are equally impressive, but I think they've aged somewhat awkwardly, and not just because these days it seems like there's less of an emphasis in ever in hip-hop on lyricism, but also through the 2000s, albums like this attracted these somewhat obnoxious leagues of backpack rap fans that needlessly poo-pooed the artistic merits of a rapper like Jay-Z because he just had a braggadocious style and was seeing all of this commercial success. But keep in mind, this sentiment is not specific to this scene or even this point in hip-hop history as it's been voiced at numerous times whenever the genre sort of seems to get a popularity boost, EPMD's The Crossover comes to mind. But before the internet came in and erased many of raps and other genres' artistic boundaries, many of of us didn't really have the foresight to understand that a record like The Cold Vein as well as Jay-Z's The Blueprint could live in artistic harmony. So there is definitely a noticeable air of pretension to a lot of what Cannibal Ox does on this album, but it's mostly in the spirit of competition, and Vast Air and Vortal Mega's respective styles were pretty unique for the time, so I think they had reason to believe that their lyrical miracles were something special, especially when Vast Air says, we in the catacomb, nappy-headed, never used a comb, and built with the forces that blew away Dorothy's home. I grab the mic like, are you experienced? But I don't play guitar, I play my cadence. And if I exhaled arguments only to hold my breath, I would die, and I ain't talking hair color. I'm talking about the reality with my mother's eye water. The transition from dying to hair dye then to my mother's eye water, aka tears, is kind of weird. It's one of many verses and passages on this record that stick out for their odd references and word choice, but most of what happens on the cold vein, lyrically speaking, is pretty dark, esoteric, and occasionally nerdy. Whether the duo is battling it out with aliens, like on this bit right here, or dropping poetic nods to stuff like children's stories or video games, not to mention Vastair's slightly unorthodox delivery style flows kind of like he's part rapping, but also part ranting. He can be pretty funny too, like on the song Raspberry Fields, like in this bit right here, where at the end of it, he kind of makes fun of himself for using the same word twice in his verse, oh my god, and then immediately after which he proceeds to use that whole same section of that verse over again in the same track. Almost like Cannibal Ox were annoyed with whatever standards people would be throwing onto their own music because the duo wasn't insisting that uh, what they were doing was like, I don't know, some kind of like golden rule to live by or that other people couldn't make their own styles of hip-hop music because records like this are very much about breaking the rules, not necessarily just holding up traditions. In contrast with Vast Air, Vortal Mega vibes more like a quintessential New York rapper. He's got that incredibly slick New York flow that actually could have fit on any number of Jay-Z songs had he been invited for a feature. For example, the song Straight Off the D.I.C. Effortlessly 
smooth, especially on the hook, which is incredibly catchy despite the fact that it's so friggin' wordy. And despite some of the beats on this thing being weird as hell, it does not really seem to trip up Vortal Mega's incredible sense of rhythm, especially on the song Vain, which has one of the most unlikely grooves of any hip-hop song in the 2000s. And lyrically, even though his stuff is pretty thoughtful, it's never really doing too much like many other verses or even features on this record are, like Alaska on the song Adam, where he says, a lot of cats pop sh I pop apocalypse, topple propaganda force-fed to the populace. My thoughts run the gamut from outstanding to preposterous. On top of this, I move posteriors from impoverished to posh areas. <laughs> oh, it's, which is, wow, you're really trying to work those lyrical angles. And, and you know, I do dig it. I do dig it. Or even Vastair on this passage of lyrics right here, where at the end of it, he kind of ends off with this mocking laugh, kind of like he's aware of how hard he's trying with all this stuff. Again, some bits of this record can be a little much, can be kind of over the top, but still, this is a New York hip-hop album, which very much contains the grit and guts that rappers from this city are known for, because there's plenty of deadly and murderous lyricism that can be read between these lines. But then again, there's enough emotional dynamics to this record for Cannibal Ox to come out with songs like F-Word, which is essentially about romance and trying trying to get out of the friend zone with your opposite sex relationships, or on the song Stress Rap, where they lyrically go off on the misery that a lot of people stuck in the NYC rat race feel. The song Painkiller is pretty focused on themes of escaping pain and addiction and depression. Meanwhile, there are numerous very smart lyrical references to birds and humanity on the song Pigeon. These themes also carry over onto the final bonus track, Screaming Phoenix, too, which ends up being kind of a cool transition point for the duo from a pigeon to a phoenix. The features on this record generally add a lot of flavor to it too, like Lifelong and Sea Ray on the track Battle for Asgard, which is easily one of the most badass songs on this entire record. The appearances that LP makes on this record are not only really great, but also show just how consistent he's been over the years. From the opening lines of Ox Out the Cage to whatever he's recorded most recently with Run the Jewels, LP's style is distinct and instantly recognizable. The Cold Vein is also a pretty dense record too at 15 tracks topping 70 minutes of material. So not only are a lot of the hip hop songs on this record just throwing a lot at you, they're very layered, they're very, again, experimental and abstract, but Vast Air and Vortal Mega and LP give you a lot to sift through. And it's a lot of great stuff too with adventurous instrumentals and forward thinking lyrics and great performances and not a lull in the entire track list. Assuming though that it's your cup of tea. Those are pretty much my thoughts on The Cold Vein. Classic hip-hop record, great hip-hop record, one of the best of the 2000s. Painfully sad and unfortunate that this album was essentially the start, but also <laughs> the end for Cannibal Ox in the same breath. And the scene that this record came from was kind of short-lived too. But still, it's amazing that it happened. It's amazing that all of the records and the back catalog and the artistic fingerprints are there. The influential ripples are still moving to this day. And hopefully more artists take from the experiment and adventurous cues this album puts forward into the future. Tran, zition into, into the next the review. Next review.
The Woods was the seventh full-length album from American rock trio Sleater Kinney. Originally, this thing came out in 2005 via Sub Pop Records. For years, many thought it to be the band's swan song record until they had basically reformed and dropped a follow-up album ten years later, the album No Cities to Love, a pretty decent no BS indie rock record. But back in 2005, The Woods seemed like an epic moment of finality for a band that didn't really give a strong reason for hanging up their instruments the next year. And over the ten plus years the band had been performing and dropping albums up to that point, Slater Kinney had become a pretty essential part of the burgeoning American indie rock scene, which was then just starting to see some major commercial success. And a big part of what made Slater Kinney stick out from other bands cut from the indie cloth was their gutsy, unapologetic attitude and sound that was hugely inspired by many Riot Girl bands that came before them. Their very trebly and crunchy dual guitar, no bass sound certainly contributed to that, as well as frontwomen Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker both taking on vocal duties, and both brandishing these shouty, sharp, and in-your-face singing voices that rang like sirens. Even though for many people the aggressive and also sour quality of Kenny's sound may be initially off-putting, like many other great rock bands, they push you out of your comfort zone and their abrasive demeanor eventually ends up being what pulls you in. Some of the band's past records are more palatable than others, but most of them are pretty no-frills, especially their self-titled debut and Dig Me Out. But The Woods was a much different animal for Slater Kenny. It was much noisier and gnarlier. It's not a sludge metal album or anything like that, but Carrie and Corin and Janet on this record were working with more layers and distortion and effects than I think they have on any previous record. All of the sounds the band was pursuing on this record was a pretty bold move away from the raw and organic and very dry style that had been their calling card up until that point. Even all the way up to more recent releases on the Kill Rockstars label like All Hands on the Bad One and One Beat. Now, most likely this was due in part to switching producers on the woods over here to Dave Friedman, known for his work with the Flaming Lips, with Mogwai, Sparkle Horse 2, as well as Mercury Rev, who he also played bass for. Point is that these are artists that aren't exactly known for keeping their sounds simple. And making this change did create an interesting result in Slater, Kenny being able to maintain this organic, raw performance style while still creating a pretty varied and dynamic sound. The drums on this thing are pretty heavy and booming. The guitars certainly have more separation in that some of them were EQ'd to have way more bass so they would kind of suffice for a bass part in a given track. And The Woods wasn't just a change in the way that Sleater Kinney was recorded though, because certainly on this record they were writing and performing with more ambition than ever too. And on occasion with these songs, kind of looking to the past for inspiration the song What's Mine Is Yours is like a tart piece of stomp rock. Everything about the track, the riffing, the pacing, it feels really old school, almost like a classic rock song or something. All of it except for the, the very brash and, and abrasive attitude, as well as the mirror-shattering vocals. There's even something about some of the lyrical phrasing on this track that feels like it's been lifted straight out of an old blues song. Someone's in the kitchen cooking hearts of earth stuff. The song Steep Air sounds like an enraged and kind of demented take on the 
dramatic hard rock forged by bands like Led Zeppelin. The following track, Let's Call It Love, seems to pull from that same era of inspiration, but it's an 11-minute monster. Nowhere near as catchy or brief as a lot of the other songs on here. The track is really an edge-of-your-seat thrill ride with wailing guitar leads and exploding drums, psychedelic effects blaring away in both channels. Never before has Slater Kinney sounded so simultaneously lost in the moment, but also crushing. This track also transitions pretty seamlessly into the closing cut, Nightlight, which is kind of a calm after the storm, but is still mired by a lot of these feelings of moodiness and tension that carry out through much of the woods. It's undoubtedly an angry album, but I don't think it points its anger in the same way that most pissed off albums do, at some kind of faraway point or effigy or idea. In the case of The Woods, it sounds like existing as a band and maybe even just recording this album itself is what's pissing the band off. Either that or Carrie Korn and Janet have essentially said to themselves, what, over the years we haven't been loud enough and in your face enough and bold enough? So it's like for themselves, they're raising the bar and then rocketing over it. So to take it back to the start of this LP, The Fox, there is not a volume you can play this track at where it does not sound deafeningly loud. Janet's drums pop like gunshots, Carrie and Korn's guitars roar like heavy machinery. The lead vocals are wailing harder than ever, and the heavier passages on this cut contrast nicely with these woozy guitar chords set against this kind of ominous story of a nefarious fox breaking a, a naive duck's heart. It's like a bitter twist story, romantic allegory made out of a kid's story. The song Wilderness almost grooves as if it's uh, an old-school post-punk throwback, with a somewhat weird dance beat and these very well-defined staccato guitar notes and phrasings. Meanwhile, the lyrics of the song tell a story of a couple trying to get on with their lives, move on to the next chapter, but their love for each other is kind of dissolving before their very eyes. And neither come out looking all that good, especially with lyrics like a two-headed brat tied to the other for life. I also love the song Roller Coaster for its equally peppy guitar licks. One of the only tracks on this entire LP I would dare call cute. The lyrics on this one for me read like they're coming out of a place of pure lust and infatuation, driving someone into a relationship with somebody that they eventually just get bored of, like it was just a bad idea to begin with. Meanwhile, the song itself sounds like you're stuck on a carnival ride when it suddenly gets super booming and distorted in the middle third. Between all the noise on this track and the background vocals, it, it sounds like a Waves album before a Waves album even existed, kind of like Sleater Kenny was there first to the lo-fi indie craze of the late 2000s. The song Jumpers is a bit more quiet and introspective than a lot of other songs on this record, but no less tense and hard-hitting in the grander scheme of things. The song features these chilling, in-unison lead vocals. Our protagonist in the song is wanting to commit suicide because of this really lonely and isolated city life that she leads. I legitimately find the end of this track to be pretty frightening. Meanwhile, the song Modern Girl is a pretty toned-down, simple, raw, velvet underground-ish ballad, with very twangy and plain guitars, very rudimentary accompaniment. There's a simple beauty to it that I love a lot, and believe me, at this middle point of the record, this breather is very much needed. The song Entertain is easily one of the catchiest songs the band has ever written. It's also a pretty interesting critique of commercial entertainment and the retro trends in rock music at the time. It's kind of funny the band was complaining about this in the 2000s, because I, I wonder what they would 
think about it today. Especially with lyrics like, you come around looking 1984, you're such a bore, 1984 nostalgia, you're using it like a whore, it's better than before, it's better than before. It's also kind of curious considering there are parts of this album that feel like a little bit of a throwback, though I would argue Sleater Kinney does a good job of updating these ideas and sounds. Though there's definitely an intentionally indecisive push and pull to some of the lyrics of this track. Go away, don't go away, look away, no please, don't look away. Also, some of the pre-chorus sections on this track, as well as the whoa, whoa background vocals, feels like something straight out of like a 70s rebellious punk song. But as scattershot as the point of this song may be, I do think Sleater Kinney comes through with some uh, strong ideas, especially in regards to making safe art, making safe music, conformity, buying into whatever lie commercial entertainment is often trying to sell you. There's also a really strong sentiment of rejection and opting out being voiced on this track that I think may have also driven the band to their ultimate decision to go on hiatus for as long as they did. A hiatus that I'm definitely glad ended, which I think is a pretty good closing sentiment to round this review up on. So all in all, in my opinion, The Woods, one of the better rock albums of the 2000s, regardless of subgenre. Not a single song on this thing that I'm not impressed by, not a single element of it that I don't think is incredibly bold to some degree, whether it be the vocal delivery, the textures, the production, the performances, some of the topics, the personality, especially the volume. And I love how the band was essentially able to evolve so quickly and creatively on this LP, challenge themselves, challenge their listeners, and create a really well-written album that is a crossroads of many different styles of underground rock, whether we're talking about indie rock and punk rock or garage and psych stuff or noise rock. Totally badass record, period. One of the most essential rock albums of the 2000s, and uh, we're going to leave it at that. Uh, those are my thoughts. Hopefully you've checked this album out as well. If you have not, please do. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a classic review of this Postal Service album, Give Up, Let's Go. This is the first and only album from Jimmy Tamborello and Mr. Ben Gibbard as a duo, the Postal Service. This is a landmark record from two figures that would take the indie world by storm in the middle aughts, getting the ball rolling on a tidal wave of indie tronica music that would stay a pretty essential part of the scene ever since. And not to overcredit Jimmy and Ben on this one because because slipping electronics into the typically guitar-centric sounds of indie was already a thing at the time of the release of this album, thanks to acts like Broadcast, or Stereolab, or even Jimmy Tamborello's previous work. But the release of this LP was a phenomenon that was like none other at the time. I mean, it was certainly enough to convince Connor Oberst that he could do an electronic record. I should also note that Give Up is just one of only two albums to go platinum status in the Sub Pop Records catalog, with the lead single from this thing Such Great Heights reaching gold, and seeing a handful of major advertisement placements too. Keep in mind that this was all happening during a time when these overnight sensations exploding out of the music underground had kind of come and gone with the grunge era. In the early and mid-2000s, between major music publications and radio and television, the industry had 
pretty well regulated what was relevant and what wasn't. Between post-grunge garbage and dance pop divas and new metal's final hours, as well as hip-hop's bling era being in full swing, there weren't a lot of spaces in the mainstream for alternative voices. Even with the explosion of emo and pop-punk rocking against Bush, don't wanna be an American idiot! Musically speaking, if you wanted to find something underground or even keep your finger on the pulse of something as commonplace as jazz in the 2000s, you kind of needed to go out of your way to find out about it. Either at an actual place like a performance or a club or a record store, or through what little online sources there were like peer-to-peer -peer music sharing services or music journalism upstarts like Pitchfork Media or obscure music forums. And yes, even though in the 2000s the internet was in fact a thing, the closest thing everyone had to a large-scale social media and music streaming service at the time was MySpace. The internet was there, but it wasn't yet at a place where it was creating these large-scale cultural phenomenons on the level of a, an odd future. So at that time, it was kind of surprising to see bands like Modest Mouse and Death Cab for Cutie, as well as the Decemberists, landing these major label music deals. All of which I could go on about forever, but that's just kind of a little bit of taste of the context at the time that contributed to why this record stood out in the way that it did. Despite how great this record is, how popular it is as well, it doesn't really seem like that much on the surface as it is a pretty straightforward collection of 10 tracks rounding out at 44 minutes. And all the tracks on this thing, given the previous output of Ben Gibbard with Death Cab for Cutie, as well as Jimmy's work, especially under the name Dentel, these songs are essentially a perfect marriage of their respective styles. Not only in that they complement each other really well, but they also create something really special together. The beats on this thing generally are very beautiful, they are texture-rich, they're subtly glitchy. In many ways they're not too unlike a very heady, spacious piece of 90s IDM, but they also sweetly groove along like a nice piece of synth pop too. And given the indie angle of this record as well, a lot of the songs on here are quite Quaint. There's also something very calculated about the instrumentals on this record, too. Constantly veering between desolate dystopia and blissful utopia in such a way where it blurs the lines between the two. I love the rudimentary forlorn intro of the track The District Sleeps Alone Tonight. The song's eventual build-up into a very peppy finish is excellent. The subtle touches of background vocals and strings along the way are quite nice. There's also the idyllic Sleeping In, which is a very gentle and beautiful electroacoustic mix. I especially love how the the kind of nimble synth bass line on this track mixes with the washy wall of acoustic guitars that kind of envelops the track at the very finish. The lullaby chorus on this track is fantastic. Don't wake me, I plan on sleeping in. It feels like I've been handed the nicest, sweetest, warmest, snuggliest sweater ever, and I'm wearing it, but I'm, you know, basically living through nuclear winter, so... You know. The serene instrumental on the track Recycled Air feels like I've been transported into a brave new technocracy, where feelings have been rendered completely obsolete outside of the very low baseline level of ennui due to the prolonged emotional numbness. Then there's the intense and breakbeat heavy closer Natural Anthem, easily the most cacophonous song on the entire record, hitting a point where these looped wailing melodies are laced into a wall of very fast, distorted clipping percussion. This is contrasted by This Place is a Prison, 
easily the simplest and most minimal song on the entire record. The sound of this track really lives up to the title, as the track does sound pretty desolate, does sound pretty lonely, features very dusty percussion, some rough sounding bass notes and synthesizers that are cold and smooth like iron bars. The production on this thing generally is just straight excellent. There's plenty of emotional and sonic variety across the record while also sticking pretty boldly to a unique and sharp concept. Many of the beats on this thing are pretty detailed too, featuring some tasteful instrumental switch-ups. The most repetitive track on this thing is most likely Such Great Heights, but that song kind of gets away with it by virtue of being the most irresistibly catchy track on the entire record. The rest of Give Up's appeal, I think, boils down to Ben Gibbard's singing, songwriting, and lyrics. When it comes to indie frontmen, Ben has never really been one of my favorites. However, I absolutely love his singing on this album. It's just something about the very boyish quality of Ben's voice and the very even style in which he sings that just fits perfectly in the bittersweet sterility of songs like We Will Become Silhouettes and Brand New Colony. And Jimmy Tamborello's nods to futurism and utopia in the instrumentals that he creates are also mirrored in Ben's singing and lyrics. To mention the song We Will Become Silhouettes Again, the lyrics on this track are loaded with references to, like, prepping for the apocalypse. Filtered water, cans of food, I'm not coming out till this is all over. The air outside is unbreathable. If we breathe it, it'll make us explode. All of which is really just an allegory for a fight in a relationship or just a really toxic, nasty patch in a relationship that Ben can't seem to manage, can't seem to get through, so he's kind of avoiding all of it till it's done. And this mix of themes also holds true for many other tracks on this album. Ben seems to constantly be working on this sliding scale between dysfunctional relationships and total apocalypse. Like, again, on the song Brand New Colony, where Ben's lyrics reference this love that he's singing about starting anew in a different setting where it can kind of flourish. And this starting anew is represented in a way where it's almost like starting a brand new world or, again, a brand new colony. The song Sleeping In makes reference to global warming and environmental destruction, but also the global populace's ignorance, or I guess lack of understanding of, of which. Also the JFK assassination, that too. And the song Recycled Air, even though it may just be about one's fear of flying, Ben's anxious and poetic portrayal of this experience, there is something about it that fits in really snugly with everything else on the record. And even though there are some tracks on this thing that are very obviously just about love and not much else. Uh, ben and Jimmy do actually have some pretty refreshing approaches to that, whether it be on the very beautiful and touching Such Great Heights, a song that very much embodies the euphoric high and the eerie feeling of serendipity when you're in a loving relationship that just works. Meanwhile, the song Nothing Better features a duet with singer Jen Wood of the band Tattletale. He's in character, she's in character, and she's essentially playing opposite to the delusions Ben is expressing on this song about whatever relationship they had still existing and flourishing into the future. She kind of reality checks his obsessive outlook where he's imagining him and her growing old together. And being unable to let go of what is essentially lost is a theme that recurs on this record quite often, and is explored even more deeply on the song Clark Gable, I would say, where Ben plays somebody who essentially gets a, a camera, a whole movie rig going just to invite his ex onto this scene that he's written where he wants her to act as if they're still in love and kiss him, uh, which is about the most hipster thing I could ever imagine, if only it were 
directed by Wes Anderson. And I know the concept of this track and maybe others on this thing might seem kind of cringy on the surface, but there is something conceptual going on here, I think, with the neurotic romantic angle Ben is constantly working on Give Up that I find pretty intriguing. Overall, there's not really a song on this record I don't love to some degree, not really a lyric or a story or a theme that I don't admire. I think the closing track is a little inconclusive, or it's one of a few moments on here where I wish Ben had just contributed more vocals and lyrics to the song overall. But Give Up, in my opinion, is a near-perfectly crafted pop album that is pretty much like I don't know, the, the indie version of Mad Villainy, though it came out before Mad Villainy, but you get what I'm saying. Two great artists in a particular genre coming together for one single album that is amazing and genre-defining and one of the best of the 2000s. So yeah, that's that's pretty much what, what this is. It's classic as hell. I love, I love it to death, and uh, I highly recommend it to anybody who has not heard it yet. And uh, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. Thank all of you for listening to this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Hopefully you guys enjoyed all of the classic reviews in this episode. Remember, you can hit us up on social media, twitter.com slash the needle drop and Instagram, afantano. You can see more videos and segments and news from us on our website, theneedledrop.com. And shout out to Jonah for pulling together every episode of this podcast as he does so fantastically every week. We will see you guys soon, very soon, a, another podcast next week with our regularly scheduled programming of more recent records and Fantano segments and all that. But uh, until then, make sure to subscribe on wherever you are downloading and listening to these podcasts at. If you can, leave a review too. Some positive feedback would be great. And again, we will see you guys. You will hear us in the next one. Anthony Fantano, The Needle Drop Podcast, forever. forever. forever.